hello and welcome to the Cory Doctorow podcast. I am in the final week of the Kickstarter for the audiobook of The Bezel. And if you haven't contributed yet, I hope you will consider it. Pre-ordering that book is one of the best ways to support my career and to let me continue to make these podcasts free, as I have done since the early 2000s. The new audiobook is nearly done. John has nearly finished mastering it. He's got some great bed music for it. We're just waiting for Will to finish up on a TV shoot and come back into the studio next week and record just a few pickups. It actually came out really good. I won't be there, though, when he's in the studio because I'm going on the road. As I record this on January 21st, I'm a day away from my appearance at Books and Books at Coral Gables in Miami, Florida on January the 22nd at 8 p.m. And then I'm heading to Berlin. Now, Berliners who tried to book for either of my events there may have been frustrated because they were both completely sold out, but we have added a third date. So that third date is a presentation at Otherland Books in Kreuzberg on January the 28th. Then I'm giving the McLuhan Lecture on January 29th at the Canadian Embassy. Then I'm back at Otherland on the 30th. Now, there's a whole bunch of other travel coming up for the bezel, but most of it is not yet publicly announced with dates and URLs. The two dates that are confirmed with URLs are an event at Third Place Books in Seattle on February the 26th and the Tucson Festival of Books on March 9th and 10th. But I am also coming to Calgary, Vancouver, Toronto, Salt Lake City, Phoenix, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Silicon Valley and Marin, at least three dates in the Bay Area, Chicago, And then we're trying to figure out uh, an East Coast stop. It'll probably be either Boston, D.C., or New York. And I will also be in Turin, Italy, and in Tartu, Estonia. I'll have more details on those as those events become more formalized. The other news this week is that I put together a um, proposal for yet another book. Yes, I know I said I was done writing books for a while, having written nine during the lockdown. But here is lucky number 10. And of course... It's an enshittification book. It turns out that when you start to lay out the entire enshittification thesis, not just how businesses go bad, but what technical systems they use to go bad and what forces cause them to go bad and how to make them get better, that you end up with a book about the same length as the internet con that makes a good companion piece. My agent is currently shopping that to three different publishers, all of whom have expressed interest. So we'll see where that nets out. Now, This week, I'm going to read to you my latest Locus magazine column, which is called What Kind of Bubble is AI? And yeah, I am so tired of talking about AI, and yet I keep getting sucked into talking about AI. And I was thinking about it as I was getting ready to sit down and record this, and I realized that the very stupid AI boosters, who are really obnoxious, use Milo Yiannopoulos' technique of saying things that are so grossly offensive that you end up repeating them in order to rebut them, and then you kind of give oxygen to them. So score one for you, dumb AI boosters. I'm stupider than you are. I took the bait. And here we are with What Kind of Bubble is AI from the January 2024 Locus Magazine. Of course, AI is a bubble. 
It has all the hallmarks of a classic tech bubble. Pick up a rental car at SFO and drive in either direction on the 101, north to San Francisco, south to Palo Alto, and every single billboard is advertising some kind of AI company. Every business plan has the word AI in it, even if the business itself has no AI in it. Even as two major terrifying wars rage around the world, every newspaper has an above-the-fold AI headline, and half the stories on Google News as I write this are about AI. I've had to make a rule for my events. The first person to mention AI owes everyone else a drink. It's a bubble. Now, tech bubbles come in two varieties. The ones that leave something behind and the ones that leave nothing behind. Sometimes it can be hard to guess what kind of bubble you're living through until it pops and you find out the hard way. When the dot-com bubble burst, it left a lot behind. Walking through San Francisco's Mission District one day in 2001, I happened upon a startup founder who was standing on the sidewalk selling off a fleet of factory-wrapped steelcase leap chairs, $50 each, and a dozen racks of servers with as much of his customers' data as I wanted, $250 per server or $1,000 for a rack. Companies that were locked into sky-high commercial leases scrambled to sublet their spaces at bargain basement prices. Craigslist was gutted with foosball tables and razor scooters, and failed dot-com t-shirts were up for the taking by the grateful. But the most important residue after the bubble popped was the millions of young people who'd been lured into dropping out of university in order to take dot-com jobs where they got all-expenses-paid crash courses in HTML, Perl, and Python. This army of technologists was unique in that they were drawn from all sorts of backgrounds. Art school dropouts, humanities dropouts, dropouts from earth sciences and bioscience programs, and other disciplines that had historically been consumers of technology, not producers of it. This created a weird and often wonderful dynamic in the Bay Area, a brief respite between the go-go days of Bubble 1.0 and Bubble 2.0, a time when the cost of living plummeted in the Bay Area, as did the cost of office space, as did the cost of servers. People started making technology because it served a need, or because it delighted them, or both. Technologists briefly operated without the goad of VCs' growth-at-all-cost spurs. The bubble was terrible. VCs and scammers scooped up billions from pension funds and other institutional investors and wasted it on obviously doomed startups. But after all that irrational exuberance burned away, the ashes proved fertile ground for new growth. Contrast that bubble with, say, cryptocurrency or NFTs or the complex financial derivatives that led up to the 2008 financial crisis. These crises left behind very little reusable residue. The expensively retrained physicists, whom the finance sector taught to generate wildly defective risk-hedging algorithms, were not able to apply that knowledge to create successor algorithms that were useful. The fraud of the cryptocurrency bubble was far more pervasive than the fraud in the dot-com bubble, so much so that without the fraud, there's almost nothing left. There are a few programmers trained in Rust, a very secure programming language that is broadly applicable elsewhere, but otherwise, the residue from crypto is a lot of bad digital art and worse Austrian economics. 
AI is a bubble, and it's full of fraud, but that doesn't automatically mean there'll be nothing of value left behind when the bubble bursts. WorldCom was a gigantic fraud, and it kicked off a fiber-optic bubble. But when WorldCom cratered, it left behind a lot of fiber that's either in use today or waiting to be lit up. On balance, the world would have been better off without the WorldCom fraud, but at least something could be salvaged from the wreckage. That's unlike, say, the Enron scam or the Uber scam, both of which left the world worse off than they found it in every way. Uber burned $31 billion in investment cash, mostly from the Saudi royal family, to create the illusion of a viable business. Not only did that fraud end up screwing over the retail investors, who made the Saudis and other early investors a pile of money after the company's IPO, but it also destroyed the legitimate taxi business and convinced cities all over the world to starve their transit systems of investment because Uber seems so much cheaper. Uber continues to hemorrhage money, resorting to cheap accounting tricks to make it seem like they're finally turning it around, even as they double the price of rides and have driver pay and still lose money on every ride. The market can remain irrational longer than any of us can stay solvent, but when Uber runs out of suckers, it will go the way of other pump and dumps like WeWork. What kind of bubble is AI? Like Uber, The massive investor subsidies for AI have produced a sugar high of temporarily satisfied users. Fooling around feeding prompts to an image generator or a large language model can be fun, and playful communities have sprung up around these subsidized, free-to-use tools. Less savory communities have also come together to produce non-consensual pornography, fraud materials, and hoaxes. The largest of these models are incredibly expensive. They're expensive to make, with billions spent acquiring training data, labeling it, and running it through massive computing arrays to turn it into models. Even more important, these models are expensive to run. Even if a bankrupt AI company's model and servers could be acquired for pennies on the dollar, even if the new owners could be shorn of any overhanging legal liability from looming copyright cases, even if the eye-watering salaries commanded by AI engineers collapsed, the electricity bill for each query, to power the servers and their chillers, would still make running these giant models very expensive. Do the potential paying customers for these large models add up to enough money to keep the servers on? That's the $13 trillion question, and the answer is the difference between WorldCom and Enron, or dot-coms and cryptocurrency. Though I don't have a certain answer to this question, I am skeptical. AI decision support is potentially valuable to practitioners— Accountants might value an AI tool's ability to draft a tax return. Radiologists might value the AI's guess about whether an X-ray suggests a cancerous mass. But with AI's tendency to hallucinate and confabulate, there's an increasing recognition that these AI judgments require a human-in-the-loop to carefully review their judgments. In other words, An AI-supported radiologist should spend exactly the same amount of time considering your x-ray and then see if the AI agrees with their judgment, and if not, they should take a closer look. AI should make radiology more expensive in order to make it more accurate. But that's not the AI business model. AI pitchmen are explicit on this score. 
The purpose of AI, the source of its value, is its capacity to increase productivity, which is to say it should allow workers to do more, which will allow their bosses to fire some of them or get each one to do more work in the same time or both. The entire investor case for AI is companies will buy our products so they can do more with less. It's not business customers will buy our products so their products will cost more to make, but will be of higher quality. AI companies are implicitly betting that their customers will buy AI for highly consequential automation, fire workers, and cause physical, mental, and economic harm to their own customers as a result, somehow escaping liability for these harms. Early indicators are that this bet won't pay off. Cruise, the self-driving car startup that was just forced to pull its cars off the streets of San Francisco, paid 1.5 staffers to supervise every car on the road. In other words, their AI replaces a single low-wage driver with 1.5 more expensive remote supervisors, and their cars still hit people and drag them for 20 feet. If Cruise is a bellwether for the future of the AI regulatory environment, then the pool of AI applications shrinks to a puddle. There just aren't that many customers for a product that makes their own high-stakes projects better, but more expensive. There are many low-stakes applications, say, selling kids access to cheap subscriptions that generate pictures of their RPG characters in action, but those don't pay much. The universe of low-stakes, high-dollar applications for AI is so small that I can't think of anything that belongs in it. Add up all the money that users with low-stakes, fault-tolerant applications are willing to pay, combine it with all the money that risk-tolerant, high-stakes users are willing to spend, add in all the money that high-stakes users who are willing to make their products more expensive in order to keep them running are willing to spend. If all that sums up to less than it takes to keep the servers running, to acquire clean and label new data, and to process it into new models, then that's it for the commercial big AI sector. Just take one step back and look at the hype through this lens. All the big, exciting uses for AI are either low-dollar, helping kids cheat on their homework, generating stock art for bottom-feeding publications, or high-stakes and fault-intolerant, self-driving cars, radiology, hiring, and so on. Every bubble pops eventually. When this one goes, what will be left behind? Well, there will be little models, Hugging Face, Llama, and so on, that run on commodity hardware. The people who are learning to prompt engineer these toy models have gotten far more out of them than even their makers imagined possible. They will continue to eke out new marginal gains from these little models, possibly enough to satisfy most of those low-stakes, low-dollar applications. But these little models were spun out of big models, and without stupid bubble money and or a viable business case, those big models won't survive the bubble and be available to make more capable little models. There are some promising avenues, like federated learning, that hypothetically combine a lot of commodity consumer hardware to replicate some of the features of those big, capital-intensive models from the bubble's beneficiaries. It may be that, as with the interregnum after the dot-com bust, AI practitioners will use their all-expenses-paid education in PyTorch and TensorFlow, AI's answer to Perl and Python, to push the limits on federated learning and small-scale AI models to new places, driven by playfulness, scientific curiosity, and a desire to solve real problems. 
there will also be a lot more people who understand statistical analysis at scale and how to wrangle large amounts of data. There will be lots of people who know PyTorch and TensorFlow, too. Both of those are open-source projects, but are effectively controlled by Meta and Google, respectively. Perhaps they'll be wrestled away from their corporate owners, forked and made more broadly applicable, after those corporate behemoths move on from their money-losing big AI bets. Our policymakers are putting a lot of energy into thinking about what they'll do if the AI bubble doesn't pop, wrangling about AI ethics and AI safety. But as with all the previous tech bubbles, very few people are talking about what we'll be able to salvage when the bubble is over. All right, gang, that's it for me. You know, I forgot to check before I started recording whether I'm going to be in town next Sunday to record for you again. And, oh, I will be. I may or may not be able to record because my folks will be in town for my kid's 16th birthday. But if I can, I'll get you another podcast next Sunday. Either way, thank you very much for listening. And again, thank you for backing my Kickstarter if you have. And please consider it if you haven't. It's at http colon slash slash thebezel.org. That's T-H-E-B-E-Z-Z-L-E. Or you can just look up Bezel Kickstarter or look in the show notes for this show. Anyway, thank you very much and talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week.